It's Thursday, March 2nd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Columbia University has become the first Ivy League school to no longer require the SAT or the ACT in undergraduate admissions. It's not the seismic shift it might seem. All the Ivies had gone SAT optional since the pandemic. Columbia's the first to make it permanent. And it is optional, and you can submit. The Columbia Spectator, which broke the story, quotes the official press release as saying, students who choose not to submit test scores will not be at a disadvantage in our process. I'm going to stop the press release here and say that is illogical and can't happen. Why? Well, who will submit test scores? Not the people who do bad. It'll be people who do good. And Columbia says, we will look at them. They're not the most important thing. They're not even tied with essays and class rank and GPA, but they're a part of the process. So if everyone you are competing against submits SAT scores and those SAT scores are high and can only help them, then it's probably going to hurt a little tiny bit the people who don't submit SAT scores or at least don't submit SAT scores to match the really good ones of the people who do. But basically, in recent years, it's become quite fashionable to question the quality of the SAT test through an equity lens. That's not exactly what's going on here. First of all, as much as the schools want to posit this or position this as some sort of a fight against discrimination or elitism, and they do, here's another quote, we will continue to evaluate all submitted information within an individualized application review process that considers the unique combination of circumstances shaping each applicant's journey and then reject 96 of them. Yes, so as much as they want to emphasize the unique journey, mostly they're rejecting 96% of people who went on that journey. Seriously, 3.73% of Columbia's applications resulted in a big fat rejection, or maybe a wait list leading to a rejection. Now, it does say that Columbia after it went to SAT optional, that the number of students of color increased by 4% and the first-generation college students increased by 3%. But at this point, it is not rare for a student of color to be able to gain access into an Ivy League school. In fact, the undergraduate composition of Columbia is 47% white, 53% students of color. If you take into account the graduate divisions, Columbia is only 30% white. There's a lot of international and overseas students contributing to that fact. You might be saying, okay, well, 47% white, isn't that what Generation Z is? Yeah, but if you look at Americans born in 2004, which is when most of today's college freshmen were born, it's like 58 or 57% white. So Columbia is a little less white than, or the Columbia freshman class, a little less white than their cohort in society, a little more people of color. The reason, and the reason I bring this up, is that race is really what's undergirding this decision. Because the SFFA versus Harvard case will be handed down, that decision will be handed down by the Supreme Court by the end of the school year. And the plaintiffs there are Asian students who point to data that show it's harder for them to get admitted into Ivy League schools. The plaintiffs introduced expert testimony at the trial that found that Asian American students needed on average 140 points higher on their SAT than white applicants in order to get into elite colleges. So elite colleges look at this and say, well, damn it, we've got to do something about this. We've got to eliminate the SATs. By the way, 
Colleges, Ivy League colleges, non-public colleges can construct their freshman class however they want. And I think that given the position of Ivy League colleges, they can do no wrong. I don't mean that I won't fault them or they can't make mistakes, but their mistakes just cannot redound to decreasing the value of their brand. I could think of literally no institution in society that is more unassailable than Ivy League colleges. It would take a generation of tarnishing the status, the gloss, the guild that they've acquired in terms of reputation, in terms of perception, in terms of just the sheer number of people desperate to be a part of it. And look at the endowments. Harvard has an endowment of $49 billion. And 2022 was a down year in the stock market. Yale, $41 billion. Stanford, $36 billion. Columbia is up there in the top 20, somewhere around $13 billion. Yale's endowment is twice the budget of the state of Connecticut. And Connecticut's a pretty rich state. Nowhere near as rich as Yale. The Ivies can scrap the SAT and scrap essays and just really construct their class however they want. They can reject the 3.73% who got in and take the next 3.73%. Or reject them and take the 3.73% after that. They'll still be skimming from the very top of American college aspirants. Now, I do sometimes think about, okay, so does this change anything or benefit anyone if the Ivy Leagues are unassailable? I do think at the next tier of school, so a bit lower than the Harvards, the Yales, the Princetons, the MITs, the Carnegie Mellons, at that tier, there is, I think, a market opportunity, an inefficiency to exploit where some schools can over-index for the SAT. Take all these students who would normally have gotten into the Ivy Leagues if they emphasize the SAT, take them into their school and maybe their undergraduates increase in quality. But then again, how would we know? U.S. News and World Reports doesn't even rank or won't even rank using the SATs once colleges start eschewing them, and it's good to get away from the tyranny of the U.S. rankings, and it's probably good to not emphasize the standardized test as more important than all, but that hasn't gone on for quite some time. It's been de-emphasized in actual admission. I don't even know if any of this will ever make a difference, because right now, as I assess college, especially in the non-hard sciences, it does seem to me that the value of a college degree is almost entirely the signaling power of that degree rather than accrual of actual knowledge along the way to earn that degree. I know other countries like South Korea and India continue to cram really hard. They emphasize pitiless testing. It really drives the teenagers there crazy, sometimes to suicide. It is hard. It is rough. It is tough. It is a merciless sorting mechanism. But then the students that do well get into elite colleges, and then they could write their ticket, their golden ticket, to where? U.S. graduate schools. On the show today, the downsides of obesity, including many medical conditions and stigma. But which one's worse? But first, in their new book out tomorrow, Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, business psychologist Julie Cantor and her co-author, employment attorney Felice Eckelman, discuss the challenges of the modern remote workplace in post-pandemic America. I know we've all been thinking about this. Some have been ordered into work. Others broadcast from home studios where they look at 50 lobsters sitting on the couch and their college diplomas or those of their spouses on the wall, including Carnegie Mellon. Don't know why I mentioned that. Anyway, Julie Cantor, Felice Eckelman up next.
McKenzie recently surveyed 25,000 respondents. If you know about polls, that's pretty significant. They found that 58% of employees, which accounts for 92 million people across job sectors, report now having the option to work from home for all or part of the week. The breakdown is 35% of full-time employees say they could work from home and 23% say they could work from home part-time. It's a revolution, but a revolution that was thrust upon us So what's the best way, what are the best practices to take advantage of this new reality? Joining me now are two experts who advise businesses on how to do this. The name of their book is Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, step-by-step guidance from the experts. The experts are Felice Eckelman and Julie Cantor, an expert in the law, an expert in psychology, and they join me now. Felice, hello. Hello. And Julie, hello. Hello. Great to be here. It, it is great to have you. So I want to talk about what your book talks about and advising companies, but I think I have more questions or qualms with the uh, hybrid workplace or the remote workplace, but I'm, I hope by the end of this, you will assuage some of my concerns. So first of all, we were thrown into this, as I said. It was done very, uh, you know, scattershot, pell-mell. There was a pandemic. There were lockdowns. Businesses adapted as best they could. Coming out of that, now that businesses have the choice, what mistakes are they making? Are they just relying on how they did it when they had no other choice? And are they not really thinking about the best ways to organize their business um, as opposed to the ways that their business has sort of been organized for them? Felice, I guess you could go first. So I, I think it's a little of both. A lot of businesses reacted and said, let's just go back to the way we were, totally ignoring the reality of the last two and a half or three years. Other businesses thought about, well, we learned a lot from this experience and there are best of practices that we can, uh, that we can learn from. So our suggestion is that businesses think about their culture and their mission and try to figure out why is it that we want folks to work in an office when they work out of an office almost full-time or full-time for so many years. So the first step is not to decide, okay, we want people in the office two days a week or three days a week. The first step is to understand what is it about an office uh, that's necessary for our work. And if, if, if leaders engage in this exercise first, we think that they're more likely to come up with a plan uh, that will not result in widespread uh, chaos and dissatisfaction from their employee complement. Do the leaders who come to you or who you're reaching out to, do they want this or do they feel they have to do this? <laughs> that is a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, I think that they initially wanted to, and then they feel like they have to. Uh, we were coming out of uh, COVID coming out of, yeah. and initially leaders looked at it like a light switch. And the only issue was not if we were going back, the only issue was when. And if you remember in the beginning of COVID, we thought, oh, we'll be back in June. And people were like, no, we're not going to be back till July. And, and like, hello, three years later, we're still working with it. And so I think that the transition most most leaders had were not expecting the second piece that they were then faced with it it was a basically employee-based 
um, market so that yeah, if I didn't like working for you, I need to send a two word text saying, Mike, I quit and I'm out of there, which is part of why we had the great resignation. So the ease and frictionlessness of uh, being able to resign was part of that. Uh, right. And exactly. And so what, what happened is, you know, you saw the, the banks and first they said, we're coming back and literally nobody came back. Yeah. And so it's it's both starting with police is what she's saying in terms of culture, values, what their product is, if you will. And so what's the balance? And, and so there was great the theory. And then there was the reality that literally people just didn't come in. Mm-hmm. And so what we're finding now is that there's a balance between employers wanting them in, seeing the reasons for it. Felice and I can give you a gazillion reasons of why they should be in, and also the reasons in the balance of wanting people to be out. And one of the things we've been saying, and I've been saying to my clients, is re- to the leaders, remember, you are the adults in the room. Yeah. But you, you get to make the rules, except during the pandemic, that flipped and not just the great resignation, but now that we have record low unemployment, it really is an employee's market and they get to dictate terms. And I guess it, what, whatever business leaders want, employees definitely want the flexibility to be able to work from home at least part of the time, right? Absolutely. And, and the problem is that businesses are getting caught up in laying rules down without providing the basis for the rules, the emotional basis, and without providing the uh, positivity of of a workplace and all that we like about a workplace. And so what's happened is folks say, why should I come to an office, commute an hour, spend all kinds of money on a commute, wear real clothes, and only to come to an office and sit in front of a screen all day. And so what we uh, are seeing is that employers are struggling with how to make office work meaningful again, mm-hmm. because there's all this talk about water cooler movement moments um, and whether they exist or they don't exist. You, you can't base a policy on the fact that you might just have an idea come to you as you walk down the hall and greet a colleague. Yeah. Well, you did talk about the continuum of kinds of workplaces where this would work well and less well. And you mentioned, you know, media or entertainment or some of the more creative industries or architecture. You just mentioned my wife and I, two two of those industries are our industries. And it would seem with architecture, she goes in, but they could also do a lot of exchanging, not in person because so much of their business is, you know, in a program called CAD. Um, I'm in sort of the entertainment business. I often miss the I miss a lot of interactions that lead to sparks, that lead to creativity. Um, but another aspect of working together is workplace comedy. You know, there has been a lot of scholarship about how just seeing someone in the break room or having the, you know, roll your eyes, let's have cupcakes for someone's birthday forms daily inoculations is the way that one author, Amanda Ripley, put it. And it allows for not just the flow, but actual in-person interaction, being able to monitor the response, the non-verbal response when you say something, maybe dealing with matters that could lead to an argument. All of these seem to me to be much better handled in person. How do you account for that? I actually spend a lot of time in the book on this. 
Um, the term that I use is int building interpersonal glue. Interpersonal glue. Yes, I remember that phrase. And if you and I have interpersonal glue and I like you and you like me and I smile when you see me and I actually pick my head up from my phone when I'm passing you, that interpersonal glue is so essential in getting work done so that when you and I are working together and you're saying something that I don't agree with or quite honestly is just ticking me off, we can't get past that and we're going to be sitting in the work. If you have this interpersonal glue, it becomes the bedrock of the relationships. One of the things I also talked about, which you really hit on in terms of this facial and when you're, you can look somebody in the eye, in one of the chapters when I talk about communication, I talk about the difference of data that's coming in. And if you look at something which is written, the beauty of that, it can be asynchronous, I could send you an email, whatever. What you don't have is I don't ha have your face looking at me when I send you this email and I'm trying to say it, hey, Mike, and you're reading it like, hey, Mike. I think you told the story of someone who started their emails with hi and seven exclamations and she was saying, hi, and people were taking it as she starts yelling right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, using exclamation points, I mean, honestly, I think they should be abandoned from emails because... Different people use it as, hey, and other people use it as yelling. So yeah. you're absolutely right. It is the bottom line, and you ain't making interpersonal glue sitting across a computer. So you're agreeing with me. I mean, as far as the, the hybrid or the remote aspect of the workplace, that is something to get over. That is a challenge. That is, but uh, on the other hand, and again, um, we talk about this in the book as well. That kind of relationship can't be based on proximity or affinity bias. Proximity bias, which is I like you because you're here or I'm going to pick on you to uh, help me with this important project because you're in the office next to me and you're here all day. Or affinity bias, we all went to the same kinds of high schools because that is going to be inconsistent with everything about equal employment opportunity that we talk about in the workplace today. Yeah. So you mentioned a few considerations about who remote work might work for better than others and how intentional a business has to be in terms of uh, thinking about the needs of all manner of employees, people who have elderly parents, people who have kids, people who are of marginalized groups. Scott Galloway was on uh, CNN and he talked about another group. And I know this comes up too. Uh, my advice to young people starting their careers is absolutely to get back into the office. Your career trajectory is a function of proximity. For every promotion, there are two or three qualified people. And that promotion will go to the person who has the best relationship with the decider. And relationships are a function of proximity. So before you start collecting dogs and kids, get back into the office. In terms of uh, just practicality, practical advice, I mean, you have younger children who are uh, younger workers, would you recommend that they get back in the office? And if so, knowing that, what should businesses do about it to make it fair? Or is the fair thing just to acknowledge the reality and say putting in the FaceTime still really matters? What do you think? I will tell you what I'm doing then. Police is also, again, this backside of it, right? There's absolutely no doubt of what you said is true. It's viewed as attitude. It is viewed just what we were talking about a minute ago in terms of you literally are collecting additional data. I believe strongly that connections matter. Again, that interpersonal glue connections. I know you. I like you. I need something done. You're next door to me. 
you're literally going to be sitting in, you know, Felice will talk to you about junior associates sitting in, in meetings. Um, there is no doubt about it. There is reality to what ends up happening if you're in a, the room and not room. And I'm going to pass it to Felice, and I know what she's going to talk to in terms of differential, in terms of access. Well, I, I, I am going to say that if an organization is going to rely on fully remote or a true hybrid schedule for new employees, I don't want to say younger employees, new employees, then the organization has to make sure it takes intentional steps to provide the necessary training and apprenticeship, mentoring, affinity, you know, all of those activities have to be in place. Well, what's one thing in the training that you emphasize? So if it's a hybrid office, now you have to do what? No, no. They have to understand uh, what bias is, what proximity bias is. They have to understand um, the importance. Wait, I don't understand what proximity bias is. Do you mean people who live close to the office? Yes, because I'm in the office, you're near me, I pick on you to do stuff. Or you're always here, therefore you must be doing a better job. And in the book, we talk about a Wall Street Journal article from early on in the pandemic where somebody focused on how to make proximity bias work for you. Show up on Fridays when no one else is in the office except the boss. Yeah. So they were framing it like a hack and you are telling leaders, watch out for someone deploying that hack. Exactly. Exactly. A little more than a decade ago, the idea of the open office gained a lot of credence, and then subsequent studies pretty much showed that it was either deleterious or at best had no uh, positive effect on productivity. It's possible, we haven't had enough time to study this, that this will be true for the hybrid or even remote work experiment. Um, do you expect it to be? Do you do you, are, do you know of any studies that uh, are being conducted so that we actually have some good statistics on this rather than just supposition? Well, the beginning studies when they were saying everybody says that they're more productive, just as productive at home. Yeah. And well, if you read the fine print, the fine print of how they collected data, they said, Mike, are you more productive at home or are you in the office? <laughs> And Mike said yes, and Julie said yes, and Felice said yes. And so the studies were like 98% of people because that's what's how they collected data. They didn't know how to collect data. And so you're spot on, Mike, in terms of you know seeing if it's going to work. To what to some degree it's how much they work. It is the dirty, uh, you know, unspoken mm-hmm. dirty mm-hmm. secret in terms of how much are they really working. Like if they're, you know, tr- striking the document they've got to edit or they're shoe shopping. Mm-hmm. The the other thing is we have a lot of data about, quote unquote, data about productivity during COVID. I I think that's skewed because most of us had not much else to do but work. And so now that the world is open, uh, distractions are many. And uh, I question whether the COVID data is going to be transferable to uh, our current situation. That's interesting. So here is the, to broaden it out. 40,000 foot view. Here's my worry. Or I don't even know if it's a worry. My analysis of the phenomena. We talk about work-life balance. And I think we default to thinking we as workers, well, the more life, the better. I mean, the best way to have the balance is life, 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 and then only as much work as you need. But I think in reality, and you know this, people take a lot of pride in work. People actually get a lot of enjoyment in work. uh, And the way the workplace is a big part of that. So I think 
that this may be a permanent trend. And so far, both of you guys have spent a lot of time helping businesses structure their business so that things don't fall off in terms of productivity. I don't see how any of this really makes work more enjoyable. It may make it, you may be able to preserve the productivity or maybe even increase it. I don't see how the joy of work increases, but I don't know. I mean, you've certainly thought of this. What is your opinion on that, each of you? I'm going to get personal because this is a very emotional and personal kind of issue. If I had the choice as a young working mother to be able to stay home some days and work so that I could get to school to see something um, without the stress of having to get to the office and then get back to school and am I gonna be missed? My life would have been much happier during those years. Uh, and I, I would actually go back to one of the things you've just said in terms of people need purpose. And the piece that we have now, this ties to training, leaders need to learn how they have to be more specific and intentional about helping them connect to each other, to purpose. And that is what is going to maintain the balance in terms of going forward with, I'm happy that I don't have to commute. I'm happy that I can take get to my kid's soccer game and sign on later. That is the sort of the whole in terms of, I believe people end up in fact, do feeling in happy and enjoying work because they are do have things that are more in balance. And and we're talking about knowledge workers mostly. You know, the joy of work for a knowledge worker is almost inevitably a moment of collaboration. So people have to learn how to do that uh, when they're on a screen. And is it better? It it's different. And so if employers are going to say you can only do it on a screen, then they better figure out how to make that work. The name of the book is Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace. And we've been talking with Julie Cantor, business psychologist who joined us from her home, and Felice Eckelman, a principal of the law firm of Jackson Lewis PC, who joined us from the office. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. It was great, great spending time together. And now the spiel. Big announcement affecting the health and pocketbooks of more than 8 million Americans. Major news this morning for millions of people suffering from diabetes and high prescription drug costs. The pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly cutting the price of insulin so that none of their customers will have to pay more than $35 a month for the drug. Plus, there is a diet drug, Wegovy, which is the kick-ass version of the still effective but less hardcore weight loss drug that comes with the joyful jingle. Oh. Oh. oh, people with type 2 diabetes. So what does this say? I'd say it means there has never been a better time to get diabetes. Have at it, America. A1 sees the day. I kid, I kid. But I also have had diabetes or I had 
pre-diabetes, which I thought was like calling skull bandits pre-lip cancer, but actually pre-diabetes is a thing. And then my A1C, there it is again, it rose up into the diabetic range. So I took some metformin or metformin. I lost about 30 pounds. I exercised a lot. And now it's down to the under pre-diabetic range. I'm not saying it was easy, but millions of Americans follow a story like that. The medical community has been trying to instruct Americans on the costs of obesity and working with especially schools to fight childhood obesity. And one recent headline indicated there's been progress. A study published in JAMA Pediatrics shows the implementation of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act of 2010 led to a significant decrease in BMI scores in children ages 5 to 18. So what could be the downside of combating the problem of obesity? Well, increasingly, the answer is crediting the idea that obesity is a problem. The medicalization of obesity, the stigma of obesity, the pain and ignorance around obesity are worse than obesity. I hear this a lot. Here is Sarah Bramblett, who in a TED Talk called Breaking Bias, put her weight at approximately 430 pounds. When doctors and nurses have the perception that I'm lazy and unmotivated and non-compliant, that influences the care they provide and then has a negative impact on my health. Well, of course that's harmful. A diagnosis based on a moment's glance, that's not actually a diagnosis and it's not science. Bramblett suffers from lipedema, which is not the case with the vast majority of obese people, none of whom, by the way, should be shunned or have their character assassinated at a glance. Of course, cruelty and stigma are bad. But there is a dominant strain of the body positivity movement that seeks to reframe the thesis from, it is unethical and counterproductive to stigmatize those suffering from a medical condition. I sign off to that. But the new framing would be, Obesity should not be considered a medical condition. The argument is that the psychology of cruelty is worse than whatever poor health outcomes correlate to obesity or morbid obesity. They also take issue with that very term. So let's call being in a weight range that was once called obese. You hear this argument in books, in blogs, on Substacks, and on podcasts. So many podcasts. Welcome to Matter of Fat, a body positive podcast with Midwest sensibilities. Hi, welcome to Fat Chat. The only before and after photographs that this podcast is taking is of its dinner. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fat Girls Club podcast. Welcome to Swipe Fat, where dating's hard, but dating when you're fat is even harder. Welcome to the Gaslit Fatty, a podcast about the lived experiences of people in fat bodies. Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. The last Gaslit Fatty I encountered knocked me out for an entire weekend in college. Yes, it's true. There has never been a better time to get information that tells you the only trouble with being morbidly obese is other people's perceptions or your own internalized body negativity. Unlike the enormously popular Maintenance Phase podcast, co-hosted by Leslie Gordon, author of What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat, unlike the forthcoming book Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture by Virginia Soul Smith, who wrote Why the New Obesity Guidelines for Kids Terrify Me in the New York Times, I do not default to body positivity or body negativity. I'm all about body dispositivity. Just whatever the facts and evidence says. Is shaming bad? Absolutely. Lots of facts about that. 
Does that make obesity benign? It does not. Is the BMI chart accurate? Yeah, in some spots, it's inaccurate. Also, a weightlifter or bodybuilder with extremely low body fat will throw off the chart, given that muscle is denser than fat. But, you know, during Seattle Seahawks home games, the stomping of the crowd occasionally registers on the Richter scale as an earthquake. When it's not an earthquake, does that mean actual earthquakes don't exist? No, it just means there's the occasional false positive. There is a benighted, insensitive, ignorant, non-responsive, outdated way of conceptualizing and thinking about obesity and weight loss that is not useful to the person who might need to lose weight. But let us not get away from the idea that some people would greatly benefit from losing weight, and not just because they want to, because their body needs them to. Can we hold the truth in our head of what I just said and still not go the full negation of the premise that obesity correlates to bad health outcomes? If you are obese, especially if you are one of the young people, like most of the people who host those podcasts, who is obese, considering a more healthy diet or lifestyle, no matter how hard that is to achieve, is probably worth pursuing. Yes, and I know, the diet industry is such a powerful force, more powerful than all these podcasts and blogs, the nascent anti-diet industry. But you know what's bigger than even the diet industry? The food industry. So we have powerful, well-funded sources buffeting both sides of the buffet. You're not brave truth-tellers, podcasters. You're putting out inaccurate information when you posit that the only downside to obesity is stigma. I know it's so much more exciting to think in total absolutes or to not just tweak received wisdom, but to throw it overboard entirely. But what about an old idea like, you know, that was wrong, but it's only a little wrong or something like, yeah, they have a point, but just a small point. Please, my gaslit fatties, gather around the electric hearth of reason and moderation in all manner of consumables, both edible and intellectual. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pasca's the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oompru, jeepru, dupru. And thanks for listening.